Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. It's good to see you this morning. I'm going to continue in Acts chapter 17. If you look at verses 22 through 34, Paul's in Athens. He got there because he was uh, ferried away in a boat. He was in Berea. Some Jewish individuals from Thessalonica came and started to track him down. <laughs> and so the Bereans uh, were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians, and, and uh, they listened to the word of God. They, they met daily in order to see whether Paul, uh, what Paul was saying is true. And so then he was chased out, gets into a boat, ends up in Athens, and uh, we looked at verses 16 through 21 this past week, and, and he was there reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, reasoning with the, the God-fearing individuals within the synagogue, but he was also in the marketplace. And the, the uh, uh, Epicureans and the Stoics came and began to converse with him, and they wanted to hear more about what he had to say. So in verses 22 and following, we get what he has to say. Now, I don't know about you, but I think in our culture today, Christians walking with God, yielded to him, surrendered to Christ, obedient, spirit-filled, with hope, is essential. Amen? We need believers who daily just come before the Lord and say, Lord, here am I. Use me. Lord, where do you want to go today? What do you want to do in and through my life today? How is it that you want to reveal yourself through me today? My attitudes, my actions, the different things that I participate in, no matter where it may be, whether it's in my family, whether it's in the marketplace, whether it's uh, at the restaurant, wherever it may be. And in the midst of that, as we yield our lives to Christ, we are light in a dark world. And so God, through us, begins to reveal himself to the world, and we have a hope. We have a a sense of security in what God has done for us. We have a relationship with the Lord. We have a personal relationship, not just something that we have in our minds, not just a bunch of facts and figures that we can spit out and feel good about, but rather a relationship. And so in the midst of that, we get to experience God's joy. We get to experience his peace. We get to experience his love. We get to experience him. And as God begins to transform us from the inside, he begins to reveal himself through us on the outside. And then we have an opportunity as the Lord leads and as the Lord raises up in order to share Christ with others. Paul's in this circumstance because he was being pursued. He was being persecuted and they put him on a ship and he went off to Athens And he gets there, and we see this pattern everywhere that he goes. He goes to the synagogue, he goes to the Jews first, begins to reason, to dialogue with them about the Christ, about the resurrection. He goes into the marketplace, and he begins to dialogue with those who happen to be there, meaning anybody that was there, they didn't have a plan necessarily going in. They just made themselves available to the Lord to be used in whatever way that he chose, and whoever the Lord decided to bring to them, they began to converse with. And he starts to share with them about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in a foreign city. These people had no idea about all that Paul had been through, what he was about. But they started to listen to what he had to say, and they wanted to hear more. We're living in some amazing times. I don't think I have to tell you that. 
The other day, um, I had some time, I think it was on Wednesday, and so I called Stephanie real quick, and uh, Jonathan had piano, and so we were going to run him to piano, and in the meantime, we were going to go to Chick-fil-A and get her something to eat, and I just wanted to spend time with her, because I love my wife, (laughs) right? My best friend, no kidding, that's the truth. Sorry, I'd rather be with her than anybody, okay? Yeah, amen is right. So we're sitting there, and she didn't have a clue about this until this morning, because I didn't tell her. (laughs) But we're sitting there, we had gotten her stuff, and I had gotten, I love Chick-fil-A's lemonade. And I love Chick-fil-A because of the stand they take. Um, Praise the Lord for what they do. And we're sitting there in the car, we pulled into that little gravel uh, lot that they've got across from Chipotle and Chick-fil-A. You know where I'm talking about, right? You've seen it. And so we were just sitting there, and we were talking. And Stephanie was sharing with me some of the things that was on her heart, and we were just having a discussion. It was pretty one-sided, to be honest, but it was good. (laughs) Sorry. But anyway, what caught my attention in the rearview mirror that I did not tell her about, because uh, I just didn't want her getting caught up in it, was behind me, I saw a car kind of come into the parking lot and park behind me, and a girl stepped out. And all of a sudden, another car pulled up, and another girl stepped out. And the activity of it caught my attention. And immediately, I knew this was a little bit unique. And the truth is, they were lesbians. And so they began to make out right in the parking lot. Now, folks, this is all around us. And let me ask you something. Do you know how to handle that? Do you know how to yield to the Holy Spirit in the midst of a circumstance like that and say, Lord, here I am. What what do you want? What do you want to do? Because I got to tell you, there's a lot of hurting people out there who've had a lot of religious people come to them and slam them. They've had a lot of religious people tell them, you're worthless. You better clean up your act. And the truth of the matter is, we have a message of hope. We have the gospel of God's grace. And we have the opportunity in God's power, in his sufficiency, in his strength, to be used by him in order to present God's true love to people that are desperate for it. The question is, are we available? And do we even know how to do that? Are we willing to say, Lord, use me in whatever way you choose? Are our hearts broken for people that are hurting, that are lost, that are desperate? Or are we so disgusted by sin and the person themselves that we aren't separating the sin from the sinner, that somehow we're putting them down in such a way that God came in order that they might be rescued, that they might be saved, that they might be loved, that they might experience God. Paul's in the middle of Athens and he's walking around and he's provoked in his spirit because all these different things are taking place around him. He goes up to the Areopagus. Now, if you don't know how to say that word, it's okay. I didn't either. I would say Areopagus. And I'm very glad for my wife who corrected me and my daughter, actually. 
Areopagus. It was the place where they would make a lot of decisions in terms of uh, what was going on in Athens, but it had diminished so much that now it was relatively a place where they would go and have discussions about religion. So there they are up on the Areopagus, and there's all kinds of temples around them. There's all kinds of service taking place. The false gods, which we looked at very closely, are actually demons. And in the midst of this, Paul steps forward because they've asked him to speak to the issue of the resurrection. Because it's part of their culture that they want to always hear new things. And so God uses that in order to put Paul right there. And Paul gives this tremendous discourse on who God is. And folks, I think we ought to pay attention to this. We ought to absolutely ingrain this within ourselves. We ought to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us in such a way that this becomes a natural outflow with regard to sharing Christ with people who are lost, who are hurting, who are suffering, who are desperate for love and seeking for it in all the wrong places. And we ought to be able, in God's power and in his strength and in his timing, to share the reality of who God is so that people can come to know Christ, that they might have hope. Look at this. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I was reading through one of the commentaries on this. Hodges says this, and I think this is really great because we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth of who God really is. He says, Christianity is above all a revelation. It's not the culmination of human philosophy and reasoning. We don't get to God because we're smart or we've gone to seminary or because we've studied a ton. God has to reveal himself. That's very clear from Scripture. Thus, it must begin with what the wisdom of this world does not know. You catch it? Does not know. God has to reveal it. You can't find the truth apart from God revealing the truth. You can find certain things. You can certainly look at all kinds of scientific research and you can say, well, that's true. But what we're talking about here is the revelation of God to man, the revelation of our need of Christ, our state. God has to reveal that. And I thank God that he is all the time. And that's what Paul is wanting to make known. Do you realize that every culture has a situation similar to this? We're all bent to worship We were created for that. We were created to worship God. But sin has caused a separation there. And as a result, we've got this hole in our hearts, so to speak. And in the midst of it all, we find ourselves worshiping all kinds of different things. That's why John tells us in his epistle in 1 John, at the very last thing that he has to say is, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Because we're always worshiping something. That's the reality of it. It may not be the Buddha. 
It may not be some statue, but it may be an ideology. It may be your pleasure. It may be whatever you can fill in the trash can. That's something that's taking place all the time. And in the midst of it, God is the one who is revealing himself in all kinds of different ways. Paul picks up on something. He's looking around. He's provoked in his spirit, but he's seeing all this idolatry. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit directs his attention to a particular idol, says, to the unknown God. And it becomes his way in. I would suggest that we all need to be always praying within the context of where we're at. What is that moment that is our in? What's the in? How can we present Christ? Are we looking for that? Are we looking to the Lord to give us wisdom in that? Or have we become so comfortably numb that we forgot what our true purpose in Christianity is all about? To glorify God, yes, but also to be used by him as a vessel through which his life is revealed into a starving, hurting, lost world. Paul doesn't mince words here. And I think this is interesting too. He doesn't get up and say, oh, you guys are so religious. I just think that's amazing and I don't want to offend you. He says, you're worshiping God in ignorance. (laughs) Can you imagine? I think that's hilarious. I wish I had been there to watch these guys' faces, these snob people. Right? And Paul just cuts to the quick. He says, okay, yeah, you're worshiping, but you're doing it in ignorance. Let me tell you the true way. And I think that's awesome. There's times we get so caught up in this political correctness, folks, with gentleness, with kindness, with graciousness, in the timing of the Holy Spirit and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Be bold. Be bold. Speak the truth and make sure that it's the truth of the gospel of God's grace and do it with an embrace. Because praise God, we were once children of the wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, has saved us. So Paul begins to speak about God. And there's three things here, I think, that are important. First of all, there's the preeminence of God. Secondly, the providence of God. And lastly, the proclamation of God. He starts out with the fact that he's the creator. The preeminence of God. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. You see how he's not mincing words? He's not pacifying them. He's looking around at what's going on, and he's saying, really? You say you're worshiping God, but you misunderstand. You're doing it ignorantly. Because the true God made everything. He's the creator. The true God is the one who is Lord of heaven and earth. The true God who made everything, who is the Lord, doesn't dwell in temples made by our hands. He's above all. He's an authority. He's the creator. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things do what? Hold together. Fascinating. 
Not only did he create it all, but guess what? He is sustaining it even right this very second. He holds it all together. He's the Lord. He's the creator. He's above everything. Well, secondly, he's the giver of life. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, I was fascinating to me. This word served is interesting because it really gives us a picture of what Paul's talking about here. I, I was thinking that the word, and I looked it up and, you know, kind of walked through it and just kind of with some experience in terms of the word serve, there's different words for serve. I was thinking, well, he's just talking about religious service because of the temples that are all around. They're doing all this religious service. Now that's a part of it. But this picture that he gives here is of a physician taking care of somebody sick. Therapeutic. In other words, what Paul's saying is, God doesn't need therapy. God's not the one sick. We're not the physicians who are taking care of a sick God. Because God's the one who gives life. God's the one who gives breath. God's the one who is the sustainer, who's the giver of life. Colossians, again, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The preeminence of God. See, Paul takes what they were doing. He takes their religious activity. And in effect, he commends them. He doesn't terribly put them down for it, but he cuts right to the chase. He says, you're doing this in ignorance. You need to know the true God. You have an unknown God idea out there that you're worshiping just in case you missed something. You've got so many idols. Let me tell you about the one true God, the one who's not made by us, who doesn't need us that we are in need of, who doesn't live in temples made with our hands, but is the one who is the creator of all, the preeminent God. I would suggest to you that in the midst of witnessing, in the midst of sharing Christ, that one of the things we do is immediately go, just as Paul did, to the issue of the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. He is over all. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He's the true God. The question is, do we know him? And are we able confidently to be able to assert that, knowing what the word of God has to say, and with confidence, with kindness, to be able to make sure somebody else hears that in God's timing, in his power. Well, there's the providence of God. Verse 26, Paul goes on, he says, he made from one man, by the way, he substantiates Genesis in this, in the Genesis account of Adam, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And he also substantiates the Genesis account of the story of Babel, where everybody had come together trying to build a city. The Lord comes down and says, wow, uh, they're not doing what I told them to do, which is to multiply and replenish the earth. And so what he does, he confuses all the languages. And so then all of a sudden we've got all these nations. We've got all these ethnicities everywhere throughout the world. And the Lord's appointed the boundaries for that. 
Paul is speaking to people who don't know the Old Testament, but he is verifying the Old Testament account because it's more than just a story. It is scripture. It is God's word. Verse 27, he says that they would seek God. Now, the question is, why did he do this? He made from one man every people. He set the boundaries for all the nations. Why did he do that? That they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, that's a fascinating statement. A couple weeks ago, I talked about the seeker-friendly movement. Right? What are we talking about? Do we believe that there are seekers? Well, clearly right here, Paul is saying there are. What we're talking about and what I was talking about a couple weeks ago is not that there aren't seekers, but that we don't turn church upside down and stop discipling and growing believers for the sake of the seekers. That's a whole different thing, and that's a philosophical issue, and I went through all that. You want my notes on it? You're welcome to it. It's on the podcast, you can listen to what I said. Paul here is affirming the God-given opportunity. This is what God has done. He's the one that made man. He's the one that has set the boundaries. It's a God-given opportunity for man to seek and find him. It seems to contradict what Paul writes to the Romans in uh, Quoting from the Psalms, Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, he says, There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Sounds like a, a direct opposite statement from what he's saying here at Mars Hill. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, both statements are true. The question is, how do we understand them? I like what the Grace New Testament commentary stated about Romans chapter 3. Verses 11 and 12 says, Paul is saying that men never seek God on their own initiative. But since God draws all to himself, quoting out of John chapter 12, verse 32, which says, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. All can respond to God and seek him. God's the one that takes the initiative. He's the one that invites us into a relationship with him. And he has set the boundaries. He's created man. He's done all that he's done, whether it's through nature, etc., in order that man would seek him. What he's saying in Romans chapter 3 is that none are choosing to seek him. Now, like what Hodges says on this, total depravity does not consist in man's inability to seek God. Clearly, in Acts, that refutes, Paul refutes that idea. But rather, depravity is in his unwillingness, in man's unwillingness to seek God. There's none that seeks God is an assertion true, not of human capacity, but of choice. Everybody has the opportunity because God has given the opportunity. But not everybody takes it. Not everybody wants it. Not everybody chooses to respond to the invitation that God gives, that God has orchestrated nature and all the different things that he's done throughout human history in order to reveal himself to humanity. Verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. There's three aspects of this statement that suggest this. We could not live without him. 
That's absolutely correct. We can't live without God. God has given us biological life. There's no way that we would even have a breath if it weren't for him. But also, we could not act without him. We can't move without him. There's nothing that we can do. Because God's the one that holds all things together. We cannot be, we can't exist without him. Paul's speaking to a group of philosophers that have taken religion to a level where they're very comfortable and satisfied in their own flesh, their own pursuits, using their own logic in order to come to certain conclusions about gods that are completely false, that are ignorant. And Paul comes to them and says, hey, it's commendable that you really do worship, but you're worshiping in ignorance. And let me tell you about the God who is over all things. Let me tell you about the God who is the creator. Let me tell you about the God who doesn't dwell in temples made with human hands, that doesn't need us to minister to him, but rather he ministers to us. Let me tell you about the God who's alive. Let me tell you about the God who without whom we could not live, we couldn't move, we couldn't breathe, we can't do anything. We wouldn't even be in existence without this God. What's the proclamation of God? Verse 29, being then the children of God, he establishes this. He uses their own poets in order to do that. Your own poets have said that we are children of God. I love that. He uses their own thinking in order to bring them to something that is absolutely true scripturally, biblically. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What does he do? He declares to them the resurrection, the hope, the certainty of knowing the one true God who has come to us in order that we might seek him and know him. The person of Christ, the resurrection He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. What is he talking about? He's talking about uh, prior to the proclamation of Christ. God, through history, has been working all along to bring it to the fullness of the time where Christ was born to the point where Christ went to the cross and then he died and then he rose again. And now through that message, all men everywhere, all humanity should repent. I think it's interesting because the ignorance here and repentance is a fascinating discussion. I don't have time to get into all the details of this, but let me just encourage you in this. Repentance literally means the word itself, to change the mind. In this context, what does he mean? To change the mind about your idolatry, about your false worship, about the worship that you're doing in ignorance and your need of Christ. The situation that you're in, separated from a holy, loving God who has made himself known through the cross to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who raised again from the dead, proving that he is no ordinary man, but rather that he's the savior of the world. And so therefore, the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of God's grace. Repentance simply means change the mind. Change your mind. You're wrong about how you're worshiping. 
Repentance puts you on a path to where you're able to hear from the Spirit of God, from God himself, concerning the truth of the gospel of God's grace. And you place yourself in a position because of making a conscious choice to agree in the sense that you were wrong in this. And now you need to recognize the truth of what God is saying. It puts you on a path in order to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is by believing that we are saved. I think it's important to remember and understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Period. Everywhere, people have the opportunity to change their mind concerning their activity and put themselves on a path that God has initiated, that God desires, that God is working towards in every person's life to bring them to the point where they're willing to say, yes, Lord, I believe that the salvation you're offering to me, that you have provided for me, is necessary in my life. And it is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that then the Lord says, if you believe in me, you will be saved. What a hope. What a promise. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know this. The first part of that, by grace we are saved. How? Through faith, by the means of believing and trusting in the Lord. Repentance simply turns us and puts us on the path toward that. Then we have the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that our proclamation? This gospel of God's grace? Are we sharing our hope with the people that God places in our lives in order that they might understand, that they might recognize that there is something more to this life than what we just see, what we can figure out in our own brains with this box that we tend to put God into and lower him to the point where we're actually worshiping creation rather than the creator? What's the response? Verse 32, he says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, the stumbling block, the tripping stone here, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. There's three different groups here. And I think this is interesting. It's kind of a takeaway moment. God's at work at every, in, in everybody's life around us. Not everybody's responding to what God is doing. Some people don't want to hear from God. Some people shut it off. We can trust the Lord to do what the Lord does, which is to minister, to serve. He's the one who went to the cross, and he's the one that desires for everyone to be saved. But there's three groups here. The first group, what did they do? They sneered. You fool. Who knows what they said? But the idea of sneering here is to make fun of, to scoff at maliciously. Folks, when you share Christ and you share about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, understand that there are going to be some people who sneer. 
There are going to be people that are malicious. There are going to be people that make fun. I'm always concerned about the students in this because they're, they're in such a, an unreal culture where they're told that they're not allowed to believe one thing, that they have to believe everything. And I mean, you can go on and on about this. If you believe in everything, you don't believe in anything. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is they're in a culture where if they're trying to live for Christ in the midst of what they're going through, they're going to be mocked. We need to be in prayer for them. Sneering. Don't get caught off guard by that. There are going to be people that are malicious. The second group is interesting because it sounds spiritual, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like, oh, maybe there's hope here. But that's not the context. That's not what we're talking about. The context is that they were always hearing. They always liked to hear new stuff. They always liked to dialogue about it. They, they love philosophy for the sake of philosophy. They like wisdom and knowledge for the sake of wisdom and knowledge. And so this group of people literally are putting off. They want to listen later. We'll hear you more about this later. In other words, what Paul had to say should have radically pierced through their soul into their heart that they were separated from God and that God, who is divine and sovereign over all things, wanted to have a personal relationship with them and that it is through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that they can enter into that personal relationship. But instead, what do they do? Ah, later. Later. Oh, we'll reflect on it a little bit. Folks, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. What we're saying here is there's a whole group of people that'll appear as if they're attracted. They'll be kind of nice to your face. They'll, they'll say good things about what you have to say. Maybe they're not sneering and mocking and being malicious like the other group, but the truth of the matter is, is their heart is pretty hard and they really don't want to listen. That's interesting. The third group, praise God, they're the believers. Right? There were several there listening, and God worked in their hearts. God obviously opened their minds to the truth. Clearly in the context, they changed their mind. They repented of what they had been doing, which put them on a path in order to listen attentively and to receive from God the truth of the gospel of God's grace. And what did they do? They believed. They believed. They were fully persuaded to place their faith, to place their full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And they were saved radically, beautifully, transformationally saved. Praise God for that. Folks, you never know who you're going to run into. You never know who you're going to run into, whether it's the sneerers, the, the malicious who make fun and mock, whether it's those who just seem to pacify and pat you on the back and say, wow, that was interesting. Boy, good thoughts. I, I never really thought of it that way, and I'll think about it. And maybe we can get together and have coffee later on and, and talk about it, but they're really not interested. Or those who God convicts from their heart and they recognize the desperation of their situation and their need of being rescued and suddenly they come and they say, I'm lost. 
I need Christ. In the midst of our circumstances, in the midst of a desperate culture where we have people, kids, where we have all kinds of individuals starving for love, they they don't know the truth. The truth is all around them. Paul makes it very clear. God is near to us. He wants every individual to come to know him. And he's actively engaged in working in every individual's life. Are we available to the Lord to say, Lord, here I am. I'm inadequate for these things, but you're adequate. Lord, I want to walk with you. Lord, I want your light to be seen in and through my life. Lord, would you use me in whatever way you choose? Trusting the Lord that he'll give you the words to say. Trusting the Lord that he'll reveal to you the timing of when to say it. Trusting the Lord for all the different aspects of what needs to take place for somebody to come to know Christ. But are we engaged in going to the Lord saying, Lord, here am I. Use me. Paul, in the midst of this, recognized the culture. He used that in moment in order to present the gospel. And he speaks of God as being supreme, as being over all, as being the Lord, as having created everything, and yet at the same time as one who cares and is intimately acquainted with every individual on the face of this earth. Awesome. Are we being used by the Lord in whatever way he chooses and saying, Lord, through me, would you be revealed? Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.